Welcome to another episode of Code for Thought. Just before we end 2022 and realise we've all grown older by yet another year, here's the appropriate episode on the subject of ageing. I had the privilege to meet with one of the researchers in this fascinating area in Paris, Michael Rera. Michael and his team have been studying the process of ageing in fruit flies and other organisms. Using the Smurf assay, they could distinguish at least two distinct phases of ageing. The assay is based on the absorption of a non-toxic blue dye that increases rapidly as the flies near their end and turn blue, hence the name. Michael is also passionate about open science and improving the process of scientific publishing, and we spent some time talking about that. And here now my conversation with Michael. Hello, Michael. Thank you very much for seeing me. It's very exciting to see you, and I'm very excited about the research projects. But before we start, could you quickly introduce yourself? So, hello, and thank you for um, the invitation. Okay. So, my name is uh, Michael Rera. I am a researcher, permanent researcher at the CNRS, the mm -hmm. National Center for Scientific Research in France. And uh, I have a team that I lead a research team that studies uh, the biological mechanisms of aging using uh, mostly flies as a model organism. Wonderful. And I think congratulations are in order because yesterday you actually habilitated, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. It's a big step. So aging is one of the subjects I would like to talk about today. The other one is open science because I think you're quite passionate about that too. When I look at your cup, what does it say? Illegally download paywall knowledge. Do um, your part. <laughs> Indeed. But before we do that, let's talk about aging and the research you do. On your biography online, it says that you discovered the Smurf phenotype in 2011, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Could you explain a little bit about what that is and how it relates to aging? Yeah, so um, it's. Where to start? It's a phenotype that is basically due to increased intestinal permeability to a blue food dye that is normally not absorbed by the gut. Mm -hmm. So if you feed an individual this blue dye mixed into the food, the, the food can be detected only in the digestive tract of the flies. Mm -hmm. Except that at some point I identified flies that were turning completely blue, hence the name of the phenotype. Okay. <laughs> and what I later showed was that the risk of becoming a smurf increases as a function of time. Mm. The older you get, the higher your risks are. The to, bluer you to, get, basically. Exactly. Yeah. More, you have more chances to become blue when you're exposed to this, uh, to this dye. And I showed that the remaining lifespan of these individuals is uh, very short, so mm. about three days in flies, compared to the 30 to 60 days that a fly life span, uh, life expectancy is at birth. And uh, every individual uh, undergo this uh, Smurf transition prior to death. Uh -huh. And what we've identified also is that things that are named all marks of aging, which are biologic, biochemical or physiological uh, markers that are affected during aging, are actually uh, mostly occurring in this Smurf phase, so in this uh, end-of-life phase. 
So it marks really the end of life. So because aging, we obviously age as soon as we are born, you might think. Well, so it depends exactly on the definition that you give to aging. If aging is just the, the fact that we're uh, submitted to the time passing, yeah, we're aging probably as soon as we, the, our zygote started to develop and all. Here, I would use the generally accepted definition, which, which is one that was put together by Lopez Otin in uh, 2013, I think, which is that aging is the decrease of uh, an organism's functionalities, whatever they are, biochemical, uh, physical, that is associated with a time dependence, increasing risk of, of dying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is aging in that, uh, in that sense. Because I think for humans, isn't that somewhere in the 30s, when you hit the 30s, that start the kind of slow decline starts? Would that be the marker of aging? Or is it difficult to say? So it really depends. You have many different capabilities that do not age the same way. Maybe for many physical uh, sports, uh, your optimum is uh, in your early 30s or late 20s. But I think it's for chess, it's uh, much later in life. Uh, no, I would say that it's more in the late 50s when you start having this uh, increasing risk of mortality in the population mm. that we start seeing this effect of aging. Of course, there is something that starts earlier. Damn, because I'm in my late 50s. Well, actually, I'm 60 now, but well, well, gloss over that. You also worked on a two-phase aging framework yeah. that I think we can maybe talk about next, yeah, yeah. because I think this is also still part of your research, isn't it? I mean, what is that two-phase aging process? So basically what I uh, wanted to test was the hypothesis, since we observed that this Smurf phenotype occurs in all the individuals, the idea was to separate the aging process in Two, into two consecutive and necessary phases. So a first phase during which what we know for now is that your risk of entering phase two is increasing as a function of time. Yeah. And then this phase two of life, the Smurf phase, where most of the hallmarks of aging that we know so far actually occur. And those two different phases show different mathematical properties because the rate at which the Smurfs appear in the population, so the transition from phase one to phase two uh, can be approximated by a linear equation. So it's really easy also to estimate its parameters uh, experimentally. And the second one uh, is uh, almost constant, whatever the, the age of the individuals, mm -hmm. and uh, corresponds to an exponential decay of the group of Smurfs that appeared at a, at a given moment. So it allows us to really look at those two phases really independently and uh, try to characterize the effect of time on both phases. And what are the lessons that you've learned so far So in using this model? I know it's very hard to actually summarize all the years of research in a few minutes <laughs> summary. No, no, um, uh, that it's uh, very hard to actually bring a novel model mm. somewhere <laughs> in, in a given field with people who have a very... How to frame that? properly. A very strong conception of the phenomenon that you're actually uh, studying. The, that's the, the human lesson 
of this model uh, in the in the past years. Otherwise, uh, what I learned was that this uh, two-phase model of aging is actually uh, pretty robust. Describes aging in a very elegant and efficient way. That it's very much evolutionarily conserved since we've uh, identified. Uh, this um, model has been conserved in uh, multiple model organisms for aging, nematodes, zebrafish, flies, mm. other, other drosophila species, and the characterization uh, goes on. The question really is that some people might find interesting, and it's been covered in the press quite a lot, is how we can actually slow down the aging process for humans. So the question is, can that model be applied and transferred from the animals that you looked at and the life forms that you looked at to humans or to other life forms? Is it, is it transferable? So I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty convinced that this way of aging is actually conserved in humans too. Now, will, will it be of any help to extend lifespan? I don't think so. But I also don't think that any interventions... Mm. can really now extend lifespan uh, further. Whatever the the attempts to do so, the differences are... The, the, the magnitude of the effect is actually generally very small, mm. especially compared to the, the large lifespan extensions that uh, has affected humi uh, humanity since the, the end of World War II. Yeah, indeed, exactly, because it's gone up quite a bit, mm. hasn't it? So what's next in your research? Now uh, we're almost done characterizing uh, the transcriptomes that are characteristic to each of these phases mm. through time. We're almost done also validating the model in, uh, in mice. And we have protocols that have been submitted to the IRB to actually try it uh, in humans. Mm. That's the, the, the coming steps for the, the, the few years to come. And also, I'm trying to use this two-phase of aging uh, theoretical framework to address, uh, to readdress the question of the evolutive role of aging. Why uh -huh. is aging so widespread in the livings, amongst the livings, although in very, expressed in, a, in very uh, various ways? And why do we find this uh, two-phase of aging process also evolutionarily conserved in, in, in such a broad range of organisms? Do actually these phases really occur? So, I mean, if we look at other life forms, like cellular life forms, do you, do you see these aging phases there as well? So I didn't do any experiments with bacteria or yeast, but there are two papers from the past uh, five or six years, one mm -hmm. in yeast and one in bacteria, that are using measurements of reproduction rates of uh, the individuals. And you can actually see in those two papers two distinct phases. A first one that seems to show, at least for the yeast paper, I have, uh, I have the, the curves in mind, uh, that seems to show that risk of entering in the last phase of life increases almost linearly. And then uh, those cells that are in the, in the second phase, which is, I think, a non-proliferative uh, phase, uh, they do decay uh, following an exponential decay. So it could be interesting to 
to try to, to see whether there are things that are common between, between the two organisms. But so far, I mostly try to go towards organisms that are more interesting for founders and medicine. <laughs> okay. Uh, because I think the first time I applied for uh, the French funding agency uh, a couple of years ago, Uh, with my model, uh, one of the reviewer's comments was something along the lines of, but this might be Drosophila specific, you should try in, quote, unquote, higher organisms. The other aspect uh, that you are feeling passionate about, I believe, is open science and the way science is being communicated. Obviously, the way science is being communicated at the moment, where you write a paper, then uh, you send it to a journal, it gets reviewed, and then uh, hopefully after it gets accepted, it then gets published in one of the journals. So what's wrong with that model in your view? Is there anything wrong with that model? Isn't it all hunky-dory? Doesn't it all work perfectly well? There are plenty of problems with this model. First of all, the, the time it takes to actually get a paper out quite sometimes uh, very little added value by the reviewer's comments that you receive as, as an author. You basically, as an author, handle a, a huge part of the editorial process mm. because you're the one formatting the figures, taking care of uh, where you're going to put your data, mm. which repository and all. And yet you, you pay a lot to publish your research. Because that's what open access is, isn't it? Uh, this is the way our institutions decided to, to accept open access. It could be done faster. We have now tools that allow very rapid interactions within a community. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. what, uh, for instance? For example, when you look at just the discussions between researchers on, uh, on Twitter... The exchanges of ideas are going uh, super fast, right? Mm. And they occur regarding papers that were published on, publicized on preprint servers, so prior to oh, all the, mm. the, the reviewing process. Of course, during the pandemics, we've seen that those preprint servers uh, could also be used to send any kind of very bad papers. But let's say that when you're a serious researcher, who really cares for the value of its science as well as, uh, I don't know, your own career, your, your self-respect. You're not going to, to put online uh, something that is uh, badly written, badly analyzed, uh, with bad uh, hypotheses and all. So you're, you're trying yourself to put a paper together that makes as much sense as possible, and that uh, can be uh, really mm. judged by uh, your peers that are going to read the paper. So what value, then, does the current review process add? Do you think we need to scrap this altogether? I mean, is it really completely redundant, or do you think it still has some value? No, no, no. There is, there is still value to the reviewing process, but it could be done in a much more open and, uh, and distributed way. For example, you would just add a layer of an interactive layer on papers on BioArchive, for example, where anyone with, a, I don't know, an ORC ID or can talk about identification letter could uh, review only parts of a given paper depending on their uh, own expertise. 
Mm. And that would make people with really fine expertise actually review multiple parts of different papers just based on this. Instead of having uh, two or three reviewers on a on a paper mm. with uh, sometimes very partial uh, expertise for, for mm. regarding the the whole subject of a paper, and all this could uh, happen in a very open way where everyone would access the way the, the the research paper is being built, which would also be an amazing way to communicate uh, about how, how research is uh, is being done. So, which brings us to really a community-driven process rather than doing it in a system which we currently have, which is based on publishers funding yeah. and distributing the content. I, I definitely think that with the tools that we have now that dramatically decreased the real cost of publishing mm. an article, the role of uh, maybe not supervision, but the quality stamp that now is uh, being given by those big journals that basically sell their brand could be uh, handled by research institutions. And how would that work in your view? You mean for the stamping yeah. by the institutions? Ah, that would be more through the... I'm not finding the term in English. Uh, through the hosting of the platforms that are dedicated for, uh, okay. for such uh, an approach. For example, validating the identity of uh, which researcher researcher is actually uh, sharing his expertise for partial or total review on a mm. on a paper. So, since they validate these identities, basically the process is uh, quality stamped by uh, those uh, those different institutions. Um, I would like to come back a little bit to what you said earlier about the identification and how mm. do we actually identify researchers and that. They are, in fact, in a position to review the paper based on their expertise. How do you make that sure? How do you, how do you avoid getting trolls and uh, bogus reviews? Well, so first, I don't know how it is in other countries, but here, as a CNRS researchers, we have access to plenty of platforms that are actually hosted by the CNRS. Uh, we have our uh, own uh, authentication system when we get connected to these platforms so we could definitely go through such type of state-supported uh, institution uh, authentication for re for researchers and and then guarantee that whoever accesses those platforms for uh, reviewing purposes have a real identity uh, somewhere as a researcher the second part is definitely we should end with this uh, anonymous uh, reviewing process It should be fully open and uh, people should uh, put their identity next to the text that they write to, to authors. Mm. Okay, so we know who actually reviewed the paper yeah. and what yeah. they said. Because, yeah. quite frankly, you probably know that anyway, <laughs> very often. I think another part of publication is, and you alluded to that earlier, is the data and also the software that actually go mm. with When you have a PDF, of course, then you don't you see the tables and the results mm. of the research, but you don't see the actual paper. How do you see that evolving? So a couple of years ago, I tried to 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 develop an alternative solution, which was named uh, uh, Public Sciences, with a platform that was called uh, Public Factory, and we started that with a friend of mine and an excellent uh, software engineer, Nicolas right. Berlet. 
what we were actually developing was a little bit of a mix of Google Doc with shiny apps and I don't find the name of this uh, online platform, but <laughs> that's fine. But basically, the idea was that you would uh, edit your whole paper, figures, and data within mm -hmm. the same document and share it online so that your figures are actually interactive and people can immediately look at the way you actually made your figures. Of course, you wouldn't put your whole raw data, but at least the data that you used for your figures. I don't know, play with the parameters of the figures as you have with uh, shiny, shiny apps, for example. And I think the platform was Plotly. The tool was Plotly. Anyway, and just being able really quickly when reading a paper to play with, I don't know, the beginning of, uh, of an histogram and uh, mm. see immediately that uh, the trend you observe is actually a trend and is not uh, just due to the beginning uh, parameters chosen by the authors and, and mm -hmm. so on. So that's what we wanted to do. Okay, so that, that was basically also to help reviewers to reproduce basically the yeah, results exactly. and uh, and the, and more importantly, well, equally importantly, the interpretations of it. Not necessarily the reviewers, just uh, even the readers. Huh? Sometimes oh, the you, readers, you yeah. read the paper, and the only solution that you have if you want to check something because you, you're a bit doubtful mm -hmm. is to try to extract the data uh, from the PDF, which is quite often a nightmare. Definitely imprecise and. Uh, Mm, yeah, indeed. And of course, it doesn't give you the underlying code for the analysis. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I, I'd like to close with a general overview of open science. Mm. So let's start with, what does open science mean for you? I mean, what, how would you define that? That John Tennant that uh, used to say uh, open science is just science done right, something like this. <laughs> okay. Open science, it's a, a way to produce and share research questions and results broadly, openly, and with the least possible uh, restrictions on mm -hmm. the way to access it. So hence the cup that says, get around the paywall. Yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. Are there any concrete steps that you would recommend we implement uh, to to go forward with open science? Is there something that you think we need to do or things that we need to avoid in our daily work as researchers? I think that the increasing rate of adoption for uh, preprints is really a good sign and we should definitely do more of this. The solutions for bringing uh, easily shareable data, figures, comments, slash reviews are there. The only thing is that right now what is uh, happening is that the only ones that are getting interested in putting them together uh, are the, those big uh, editors where uh, definitely it should be the job uh, and the interest of public institutions mm. for the price they pay for uh, accessing those uh, journals for a fraction of it they could uh, develop and handle uh, such a platform. Do you see that happening? No. Are there actually activities to make that happen? Or do you see them? No, no, there are plenty of uh, people, researchers, that are trying to, to, to push alternatives. There is this uh, French uh, peer community in that works 
pretty nicely. Review Commons also. Mm -hmm. But it's still within a very small community. It still relies on the efforts of and the time of uh, individual people. There definitely should be some uh, more global software-oriented movements to try to, to make the process uh, distributed across the community, throughout okay. the community. Thank you very much for that interview. That was very interesting. I mean, we learned something about open science and we learned certainly something about aging today. Thank you. Good luck with your research. All the best and congratulations again for your habilitation. Many thanks. Okay. <laughs> Cheers, Michael. Bye. Bye.